You take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Some of the best things in life are a long time coming. Dreams, aspirations, ambitions that are sown early in life in our minds and hearts and to which we give our uh, intentions and our best efforts often seem to take a long time to mature into reality. We learn this lesson, I think, when we're very young. Maybe you remember, as I do, the long period between Easter and summer vacation. I remember it very well. It seemed to me as if there we had Easter, a kind of promise that there was going to be something and that summer was on the way, and then back to school, back to the slog, back to that awful grinding period where the days are getting warmer outside and the school classroom, now that the heating, of course, is switched off, gets colder and colder and life becomes more miserable as the seconds grind their way and the prospect of that glorious day of liberation, that last day of term, the day when school is finally out, seems never, ever, ever to come. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> it certainly was me. I tell you, it was dreadful. You, you kids who are homeschooled, you have no idea how lucky you are at times. That last term is just misery personified. But then, of course, you, just, you, you learn that lesson when you're at school, but then real life kicks in. And you discover that in real life, things are just the same. You know, maybe you, maybe you have, a, as a child, you have an ambition to be perhaps a musician. And so you start down the road. You think that, you know, tomorrow you're going to be able to play in some great place. I mean, I really honestly thought by the age of, I started being interested in becoming a preacher when I was 11. And I really felt that by the age of 15, I should be able to preach in the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, which is where musicians like to perform. Actually, I wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I ever got to preach to a packed Royal Albert Hall and decided that that was my favorite venue of all in which to preach. If only I could get that every Sunday, it would be great, but you'll just have to do. But <laughs> sometimes our goals and ambitions in life are a long time coming. And when we get to this chapter in 2 Samuel we reach the high watermark, really, of David's career. Here, the, the early promise. Here, the, the hopes and dreams that we've been waiting for, month after month after month, as we've been studying 1 Samuel and now into 2 Samuel. And they have been unrealized. They have been unconsummated. Now they come to their climax. Now they come to the point where the early dreams are coming true. When we first met David, he was the eighth son, a genuine nobody in the family to whom a promise is given. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 16, there was this anointing, this sacramental anointing of David by Samuel. When we read in 1 Samuel 16 verse 13, Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And you would think, you would think, this is it. 
Here is David anointed. He is messiahed. He is Christed. The, the Spirit of God has rushed upon him as he would rush upon the Messiah in the future. And you think, here is God's anointed one. Surely, surely, now is the time David will come into his own. And then, the waiting. And the waiting goes on. Not just month after month of sermons at 10th Presbyterian Church. <laughs> But year upon year, the waiting goes on for David as his dreams are unfulfilled through twists and turns and detours and hardships. The running, the hiding, the fighting, the assaults, the misunderstanding, the misrepresentation, the spears hurled in his direction that he ducks to avoid. The story has gone on and on and on and on till this morning. Till this morning. And we come to this new section in, in the book of Samuel that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 8, in which we're given a kind of helicopter view of David's reign with references to things that happen throughout the whole range of his reign. And the minute you get to this section in, in Samuel, uh, and when you look at the Hebrew particularly, you see that this is marked out as being different from everything that has come before. There's a holy feel to it. There's a sacred sense to this section from chapters 5 to 8. And it is marked by the personal name of God. You know there are many names given to God in, in the scriptures. Many of them are titles. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord. That is the sovereign. Whoops. He, he is the sovereign Lord. But here... Here in this chapter, the personal name of God. You always know this is signaled to us whenever you see the uppercase letters used for the name Lord. Here is Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. This name, which has been used sparingly, especially in the first part of 2 Samuel, only once in chapters 1 to 4, now is used about 20 plus times. As often as the name of David is mentioned, so the name of Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, I am, is mentioned in almost equal measure. To signal to us the intimate, personal, close relationship that exists between David and God, the Lord. And David's leadership. David's leadership demonstrates the Lord's work from beginning to end. We see David, the leader, winning hearts and minds. We see David, the mediator, reconciling and making a covenant with the people of Israel and himself. We see David, the warrior, defending the people of God, destroying the enemies of God. We see David, the worshiper, leading the praises of God's people. We see David, the builder, forming a new Israel out of the ashes of the old. And because David's work is being done in the Lord's name, we find even Gentiles coming to serve the people of God and Gentiles becoming worshippers of God. And we see Israel, Israel that has been just a disparate a bunch of tribes really just doing their own thing, going their own way especially. Now they are united. They are united as a nation 
that is beginning to throw its weight around in the Middle East, a nation under God. And in many ways, what David does is he completes the work of Joshua. He completes the conquest of the promised land. All of that's in chapters 5 to 8. And you'll say, well, there's no point coming back next Sunday because you've now told us everything that's up ahead. But there are surprises, I warn you. So you have to come back to find out what they are. But here in chapter 5, we have an introduction to the king and his reign. What's listed here are not necessarily things that are sequential, nor even things that are together in point of time. He's drawing together, the author is drawing together from various events throughout the reign of David to illustrate, to illustrate this, that David the king reigns by God's pleasure in God's place with God's presence. Let's look at those and unpack them together. First of all, the king reigns by God's pleasure. Do you see how it begins? It begins with all the tribes of Israel. That's the northern tribes of Israel. All 11 of them. All 11 of them that we would designate as Saul's party, Saul's people. These are the ones who are gathered together. Those of you who have perhaps not been following the story need to know that they've had uh, Abner, who is their hero, he's a military leader, a commander of the armies of Israel. He's been their strong man, and he's now dead, so they have no great leading figure. And so therefore, they have nobody to do the bargaining for them. And so they come almost as supplicants. They have no deal that they want to press with David. They come as supplicants, almost begging David to take the crown. They come voluntarily. They haven't been defeated in war. They're not being subjugated by David. They're coming freely of their own will. They come with arguments. They come with arguments as to why it is they should come now to David and make him their king. Look at the arguments that they give in verses 1 and 2. They argue, first of all, their covenant solidarity. We are your bone and flesh. Now they're saying more here than simply, we all come from the same genetic stuff. They're saying more than that, they are referring to that relationship that they have in Abraham, a covenant relationship as the Israel of God, God's people, God's chosen people. And they're referring to what that has meant for them. They've been together through thick and thin, for better or for worse, bone and flesh, hardship and easy days. Bones, strength, times of weakness, flesh. They've stood together. They belong together. They are, have a covenantal connection with one another. Not only that, but they argue their shared history. Here are people, you remember, who are loyal to King Saul, who's now dead. And they remind David. Do you notice what they say to David? They remind David that when Saul was still king over all Israel, it was David who made the difference. This is brought out in the Hebrew. It's emphatic. It was you. You. It was you, David. Listen to what they say. When Saul was king over us, it was you... It was you, they repeated, you who led out and brought in Israel. You were the great leader. They're referring back to the time when David had felled Goliath, you remember, with a stone in the eye. And it 
brought him down. And they said from that moment on, everybody knew that you were the leader that Israel needed. You were the one who led us into battle against the Philistines. And we won. Even the Philistines knew that you were the greatest and most effective leader that Israel ever had. And they remind David of their shared history. But supremely and for us most interestingly, they quote the Lord's promise. Look at verse 2. And Jehovah, Yahweh, I am said to you, to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. And that is a remarkable claim to make. Here are these people who have been uh, hunting David down for the last 20 plus years. For the last five and a, for the last seven and a half years, they've been resisting David as being a king at all over them. He was anointed seven and a half years before this by the Jews, by the people of Judah as their king, and the people of the north had resisted it. For the last two and a half years, they've actively been in a civil war against David. And yet here they are, and you see the great arguments they're bringing. We have a covenantal relationship with you. We have a shared history with you. You're our national hero. We know God's promise. The interesting thing is that this promise that they're quoting here, it's kind of a quotation, but most of it, I think, comes from that passage that I read to you in 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel anoints David. How did they know that stuff? And how come they're quoting it to David now? And it raises a number of questions. At least it seemed to raise a number of questions in the mind of one of our elders this morning, before the service started. And uh, I hate it when they do that. I hate it when they do that because they think they've got one up on you. I could just see the glint in his eye. I will not mention names, but Fred is sitting over there. And uh, I could see the glint in his eye. He thought, I've got him this time. Well, that's what elders should do. Of course, they should always check out that you're not teaching heresy, and he was right to do that. Uh, but he hadn't caught me because I was ready for him. You see, it's true to say this, up to this point, up to this point in the story, if you've been following the story so far, these people, all of Israel to begin with, and then especially these 11 tribes, have been on Saul's side against David. They've been part of the machinations of King Saul to keep David from inheriting the crown. And they've been involved in the misrepresentation, in the hunting down, in the chasing, in the, in the pursuing of David and seeking his life. They've been involved in this all these years. And especially in the last two and a half years, they've been in civil war against David. Why have they changed their tune? One of the things I was careful to say as we were telling the story is, here were people who did not recognize David as king. Here were people that did not acknowledge David as king. But did that mean that they didn't know that David should be king? Is it not true to say, from the language they use here, that from that first day when David, as a little boy of uh, 16 or 17, marched onto the field with his stones and his... And his uh, It was, a, it was called rhetorical effect. 
Go back to sleep where you can. Well, there's stone in this sling. They're building this up here. Come on now. Play with me. And he hurls the stone, you remember, and it hits old Goliath a sock in the eye, and Goliath falls flat. You remember that from that moment on, everybody in Israel knew, this is the leader we need. This is the leader we need. And you come to this story and you discover that is precisely the case. So why hadn't they followed him? Why had they stood with Saul against David? Why is it when Saul died they would not recognize David as king when he was anointed in Judah that they didn't come and join themselves to David then? Why was it that when Abner died, even though Abner had told them, Abner before he died had told them, the Lord has sworn the kingdom to David. Why is it that then they hadn't gone and surrendered to David? The answer is, is simply this. They did not want to recognize David. In spite of what they knew, they were suppressing the truth. They knew. This is why people make themselves believe that white is black or black is white. That is why men and women today willingly choose darkness rather than light. That is why people flee from the light they know, because they want to believe the opposite. These people wanted to believe the opposite. They had an instinctive sense that David should be king. They had a revealed sense that David should be king. But in spite of all of the evidence, David's victories, for example, and the character of David refusing, refusing again and again, to be vindictive towards Saul, but all the time being loyal towards King Saul during his lifetime. In spite of all of that, in spite of it all, they suppressed the truth they knew. This is true. This is what goes on in the world. In fact, the New Testament leads us to understand that this is going on all the time. There is far more knowledge of God in people's minds and hearts than people want to acknowledge or admit. In fact, the principle of the Bible is that we suppress the truth we know in unrighteousness. So even the atheistic, materialistic, secular scientist knows that the world was created by God because the knowledge of that has been put into their hearts by God and as their being the image bearers of God. But they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. You don't see what you don't want to see. That's the teaching of Romans chapter 1. You suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is no such thing as an objective, uninfluenced mind, no matter how great the mind may be. The mind outside of Christ is in darkness without the illumination of Christ. That's why people who have a knowledge of Christ, a knowledge of Christianity, don't come to Christ. They suppress the knowledge they have. They reject the knowledge they have. These people, for a long time now, have been rejecting the knowledge they have. But now that David has reached this point, do you see? They can no longer pretend. They can no longer pretend that they don't know who he is. And they come to him with their arguments and their pleas. What has made this difference? Is the work of God has made this difference. 
And wherever a person comes to that place where one, they're willing to admit that God is creator and set aside their anti-God views of the world and they come to recognize God as their only savior in Christ. That is a work of God's grace, breaking into their hearts and minds, preparing them to receive the good news of God's King in Zion. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you come to the place where you have to surrender that mind of yours to the Lordship of God who made you. Or surrender that mind and will and heart of yours to the Lordship and Saviorhood of that God who has come in Christ to be the only Savior of the whole world. But you notice they go further. These people who know nothing, these people who have been in rebellion against God, do you notice they know a lawful lot about what God's purposes are? Verse 2, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be a prince over Israel, they say. The word shepherd is a conventional metaphor in the ancient world for a king. And though God himself is called a shepherd in Genesis 48 and also in chapter 49, this is the first time that the word is being used of a specific leader in Scripture. The shepherd's task, the pastor's task, was to lead, to feed, and to heed the flock. When it's used of a king and it's used of an earthly leader, it means it's the responsibility of that leader, that king, to guard and feed and nurture and protect the flock, that is, the people over which God has given them a presiding position. It comes to its expression right at the very beginning of David's story. Samuel comes looking for the king that God's told him to look for. He sees all the other seven sons of, of Jesse and, and they're all, they're all cancelled. Everyone, God cancels their name. And comes to the end and Samuel says, have you got one other one? And Jesse, the father of David, says, well, you know, these are the best of the bunch. The other one, the other one is out looking after the sheep. And so he's called in. You remember, and later on in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, he calls himself in these terms, your servant used to keep sheep. And as the story progresses, the shepherd boy becomes the shepherd of Israel. David becomes the classic shepherd king. And David blends this idea into his poetry. Remember? 23rd Psalm that we heard sung a bit of which was sung earlier on today presents God as the ultimate shepherd of his people. The shepherd who exists for the well-being of his people. The shepherd who cares for his people. The shepherd who is intimately involved in the lives of his people guarding them against her enemy, their enemies. In in uh, the Psalm, Psalm 23, but also in Ezekiel 34, where God contrasts himself with a bad shepherd. The bad shepherd uses the sheep. They're, they're just a foil for him and for his career. The bad shepherd, the bad pastor, thinks the sheep exist for, for him, for his well-being, for his celebrity, for his advancement, for his profit. And it's David who gives us the model of the of the pastor, the shepherd, leader, the people of God. He refuses mostly, mostly, not always, but mostly 
He refuses to use the people for his own ends. He isn't a perfect king. But from his youth, David was used to risking his life for the sheep, for the people of Israel. And in that respect, of course, David sets us up for the coming of his greater son, the David who was to come, the David who is the, sh the shepherd king of Israel. He's called the good shepherd in John 10. He's called the great shepherd in Hebrews 13. He's called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Maybe echoing the language of Zechariah the prophet who refers to that future figure who is pierced for whom people mourn, the shepherd who is struck down and the sheep are scattered. Jesus comes to lay down his life for the sheep. Our Lord Jesus pushes the envelope on what it means to be a good shepherd. He comes as one anointed to reign over his people. He comes as one who will love his sheep to the very end, putting himself in harm's way for the sheep, dying in their place as their substitute, as their representative, in order to bring them life. I come that they might have life, abundant life. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, God is the true shepherd in contrast to false and unfaithful shepherds. Jesus calls them people who are hirelings. He says the hired hand, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus challenges the religious leaders of his day and he says, you're meant to be shepherds. You're meant to be care pastors of the sheep of the flock of God. And when the apostle is talking to the, to the elders, the shepherds of the church, the new Israel, he challenges them and he says to them, look, this flock of God are not yours. They're not yours to throw your weight about in. They're not yours to bully and bombast your way through. These people have been purchased by God. They have been redeemed by the precious blood of God's Son. They are His by creation he made them. They are his by redemption he bought them. They are doubly his. They are his flock of God. Care for the flock of God. Care for them. Love them. Love the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit makes you overseers. And the lesson, the lesson from the Bible view of what the shepherd leader should be is this that they should imitate the chief shepherd, Jesus. Not the hired hands who use people to fulfill their own ambition, feather their own nest, or further their own career. The lesson is this. Seekers of fame, power, popularity, or wealth need not apply to be a shepherd of God's new Israel, the church. The shepherd king reigns by God's good pleasure. And in a sense, they grasp this point by the second word they use. You shall be a prince over Israel. They choose not to use the word melech, which means king, 
but Neged, which means a prince. I think they're avoiding the use of the word king for possibly two reasons. One was that by calling David a prince, they're leaving room for them to call God king. So it's a good, it's a good idea having a president, isn't it? We don't have to call any human being king or your majesty or, or any of that stuff. Because our king is God in Christ. Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. We can distinguish in our mind between what a president does and what King Jesus does. That's a good thing. But secondly, I think they were emphasizing that their view of human kingship should work within the bounds that God has ordained. They were afraid, you see, of creating a royal monster that would overturn traditional ideas of what a covenant relationship with God and between the leader and the people meant. Someone who would use their office as a means to power. They were afraid of that. So they talk about David as a prince. The king reigns by God's pleasure in God's place, that is, in Jerusalem. This chapter 5 introduces us to Jerusalem in a way that uh, we are reminded that central, uh, from this point onwards, central to the purposes of God, not just for Israel but for the world, is going to be the metaphor, the idea, the place, Jerusalem. Now there were good reasons why David should choose Jerusalem to be his royal headquarters. One is, of course, that at this stage, Jerusalem did not belong and had never belonged to Israel. Though it had been promised, it had never belonged to Israel. It was held by the Jebusites, which were one of the last remaining groups of Canaanites, which Israel was supposed to have removed from the land. So what didn't belong to Israel, didn't belong, although it was near Benjamin surrounded it, didn't never belong to Benjamin, Saul's tribe, and it certainly never belonged to Judah. So it was an independent place, good place to set up what would be known as the city of David. And he starts the taking of the city, do you notice? <clears throat> it starts and ends with a taunt and with a note of irony. The taunt is from the Jebusites. They boast, do you notice, that their stronghold is impregnable and that it cannot be kept by the weakest inhabitants. Do you notice, they say to David, there's no way you can take our city. It is an absolutely unconquerable stronghold. In fact, so strong is it that the lame and the blind can look after it. There's no way you could take it, even if the lame and the blind were defending it. It was a taunt. And, uh, and I looked up John Calvin last night and he agrees with me. So they, they, uh, and one or two others do as well. And then at the end in verse 8, David, David picks it up, the taunt. And he says, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him do it through the water shaft. That's how they got into the city. And attack the, quote, lame and the blind, unquote, who said they could defend it. It's an ironic statement. David is being funny but serious there. And then he goes on to say that the quote-unquote lame and the blind who are defending the city, the Jebusites, should not come into the house of God. At this point then, the taking of Jerusalem comes into the Bible storyline. 
Not out of the blue entirely, but certainly here very significantly. The first time it's mentioned in the Bible, of course, is with that enigmatic figure, Melchizedek. Poor boy named with, only, with a name that only a mother could love, Melchizedek. He was the priest king of Salem, Jerusalem. He brought bread and wine out to, to Abraham, the patriarch. And later on, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am, promised Abraham the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. A land occupied by the Canaanites. A promise repeated again and again, especially at the time of the conquest when Joshua led the army of God into Canaan. But although the Israelites won a stunning victory near Jerusalem, they never managed to take the stronghold of Zion at the top of the mountain. So for 800 years, Jerusalem had remained in Canaanite hands. For 800 years, people could be taunting the Israelites, oh, well, where is God's promise to Abraham now? Where is the promise to Abraham now? I thought God had promised to Israel the whole land from uh, in this entire region up to the Euphrates and here, it, none of it, it's not all in your hands yet. You've got the Philistines there staying over there and you've got the Jebusites right in the midst of the tribes of Israel with this impregnable fortress of Zion. 800 years. And we're reading the part in the story where it becomes Israel's decisively and finally and the lesson for you and I is this. Time and distance. Time and distance do not diminish or threaten the promises of God. The Jebusites may hold on for hundreds of years and resist all the efforts of Israel to dislodge them. But then the Lord's anointed comes and overthrows them in one fell swoop. Later on this name Zion will become used for the Temple Mount, the city of Jerusalem, the people of God, and ultimately the center of Yahweh's kingdom in the age to come. Jerusalem will become Zion. The Zion is the city of faith, the city towards which we look. The heavenly Zion is named after it, the city of God. The city of God, Zion, which is, if you are a Christian believer here today, that is your ultimate address. That is your ultimate address. doesn't matter what your address is here in Philadelphia or the region around it or anywhere else in the, in the world. Your ultimate address as a believer is Zion, the city of God. It all starts here. People will say to you, well, where is your Zion? Where is, where is the coming city of God? Where is the fulfillment of all of God's promise? Where is the promise of His coming? 2,000 years since Jesus left us saying, I will come again. Where is He? The world says to us. The church responds as Peter responds. Listen. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Two thousand years. But in that two thousand years, the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought 
men and women and boys and girls from all over Europe and North Africa and the Middle East into the kingdom of God. And when they were persecuted there and came across the ocean to another continent, to this continent, the Lord has added on this continent millions of boys and girls and men and women who have become part of Zion, the city of God. And from here the gospel has gone south and north and west and east until it has covered virtually the entire world and East Asia, China, the great, last, greatest nation and people on the earth are coming into that kingdom, the kingdom of God, through the preaching of the gospel. Why 2,000 years? That's why. 2,000 years on, one-third of the population claims the name of Jesus Christ. God doesn't count slowness the way men count slowness. And as surely as 800 years after the promise to Abraham, David, King David, the Lord's anointed, gains Zion, the city of God, so, when God's time is finished, David's son, King Jesus, King Jesus will gain Zion and the city of God will come down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and the nations will gather together there and we shall all be in that holy place, that garden city of God, Zion, our homeland. Here is God's king reigning in God's place and lastly reigning with God's presence. Previously in the story of his rise to power we've seen God with him again and again. Yahweh was with him. But here the Lord is with him again, again as he goes into city planning and nation building. He goes into city planning. David lived in the stronghold of Zion and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around. In other words, he's now building suburbs to the center city of Zion. And he's establishing, broadening out the size of this city of Jerusalem. Don't think of a city like Philadelphia. This is small cheese, by the way. This is very small cheese, this, this city of Jerusalem. You saw it then and you think of God's intention for the future, you would, be, you would be very embarrassed with the small beginnings. But it's a beginning. David is expanding. And you notice the verdict in verse 10. David became greater and greater for the Lord. Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, was with him. Greater and greater. Every step of the way, the Lord was with him in the ups and downs, in the, in the waiting period, in the disappointment period, in the mistreatment period, God was with him. God's providence has guided everything. Not only that, do you notice the position of Hiram, the king of Tyre? He's a pagan king and he's sending, he's sending the, best, the very best kind of wood, the cedars of Lebanon, stripping Lebanon bare to build a house for David, first of all, and later under Solomon temple for God. He is a man, you see, who represents the world. And he's serving the church. He's serving the people of God. And that's been the history of the church. God has been bending the will of sovereigns and presidents and congressmen and, and, and leaders 
throughout the history of the church, bending their hearts and wills so that they serve God's church. Even against their own will sometimes. God's been doing that. God does that. He turns the hearts of enemies even into friends in order to serve the church of Jesus Christ in the world. So God is present with his city planning and God is present with him in his nation building. But suddenly the Philistines are on the show again. There they are. Back to trouble Israel. Actually back to search out David and annihilate him. Assassinate him. They come looking for David because they realize David is going to galvanize Israel together. How does David respond? He responds both times they come. Like uh, wild E. Coyote. You know, you know wild E. Coyote? Chasing the roadrunner. <clears throat> he comes back again and again. He gets clobbered. Back, bang, bang down. Over and over and over again. It's absolutely brilliant picture of the Philistines here. They, they come. They get clobbered or wiped out by David. They come back again. They just don't know when to give up. They come back twice. Both times David goes, goes to God. He says to God, what will I do? I'm not going to do this without your guidance and help. God says the first time, go up. Just meet them head on. He meets them head on. And God demolishes them. He levels them. That's, that's the language that's used. He is God the leveler. He levels all his enemies. Demolishes them. Crashes them down. And they come back again. You know, like the road running. Yeah, he gets the wily coyote gets smashed, usually with big rocks. They come landing on him. He gets crushed. Well, the, the Philistines are smashed and crushed, flattened by David. But up they get again, and they try again. This time David says to God, what am I going to do this time? First time God said, go up, hit them head on. Second time God says, don't go up, go around. I'm going up. And when you hear the sound of my army on the tops of the balsam trees, then you'll know to attack them from behind. And the Lord of hosts leads the battle. The Lord of hosts goes into battle for Israel and leads the battle against the enemy. When you hear the sound of marching on the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourselves, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And that's the last you hear of them in David's lifetime. That's the end of the Philistine threat in David's lifetime. God finally defeats the enemy in David's lifetime. God who is the leveler and the warrior who is mighty in battle. Now that doesn't play very well in our postmodern age where we want God, if there's a God at all, to be a nice mushy kind of person. Kind of gooey, sentimental, loves everybody, is nice to all. But God isn't like that, you see. God is loving to all that he's made and he does provide for everyone. The rain and the, the sun can be felt by those who are godly and ungodly. But he loves his elect people with a distinguishing, special love. And he will judge those. He will judge those who reject his offers of mercy 
And in the end, the God who was with Jacob, uh, sorry, with David, is also with us. He promises to be with his people to the end. And as you see Jerusalem fall and be peopled by David and his men and women, and as you see the story of the Philistines come to a final end, you're reminded in the New Testament that Jesus must reign. That is, he's reigning now, invisible to our eyes, but reigning from his throne, David's throne, in glory, reigning in the world by the Spirit through his people, subduing hearts so that those who once denied him, rejected him, spurned him, opposed him, rebelled against him, are coming and giving up their swords and bowing their knees to him in submission to him as their Lord and Savior. Some of you are here. And you've been that route. And you've gladly surrendered up your swords to King Jesus. He reigns now. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then the end shall come for the world. And the beginning shall come for Zion, the people of God. Let's pray. We ask, Father, that as you write your word in our hearts, that you would give us this vision for this ever-growing kingdom to which daily you are adding those who would be saved. Give us a heart for that, to see it happening in our day and generation right across the world and here in Philadelphia across the street and throughout the streets of this great metropolis. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.